This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Today's quote is from Candace Sanchez McFarlane. I have read a lot of comments from well-intentioned people with phrases like, quote, I know I will never understand what it is like, dot, dot, dot. You are right. If being a Black person in America is not your lived experience, you will never understand. You don't have to. I don't understand what it is like to be an ER doctor during a global pandemic, but I do know what I can do to support them. I feel a human obligation to do more than shout at 7 p.m. or repost articles online. I wear a mask. I actively make sure my children wear masks. I donate to causes that support their work. When people say ignorant things like the pandemic isn't real, I actively speak up and out for the people who are risking their lives every day. I don't believe the ER doctor needs me to understand what it was like to go through medical school, to take on extreme amounts of student debt, to feel the weight of responsibility when a patient's life rests in your hands, to know that you can't spend time with your family because of the work you were called to do. How could I understand? But what I do know is that there are ways within my power to support those people. Welcome to the podcast that's all about the voice, which means it's all about power. Who has it, how we get it, how we sound when we have it. I'm your host, Samara Bay, and this is Permission to Speak, where we can throw all our best ideas about how to get ourselves heard into the pot and start. Today's guest is my friend Neelam Jeet Dhaliwal. She's a social justice facilitator through the National Seed Project, which I will link to in the show notes. This means that she trains leaders and educators and now through activist organizations and through the Jane Club, which is a women's co-working space in Hollywood that's got a very robust online program during the pandemic. So anybody around the country or world can join, by the way. Through places like that, she trains anyone who takes her workshops on how to do the work to make the world more just. And that's what this episode is about. How do we speak up? To whom? What do we say? How do we handle how uncomfortable it feels? 
the systems, you know, um, white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism are massive and not our fault, but we do uphold them in all kinds of like super sneaky ways. Most of us without knowing it. And that's on us to go from not knowing to knowing and then from knowing to doing, to speaking, to dismantling. I wanted to have Neelamjeet on because she's so clear and intentional around this work. And because frankly, she's the person in my own life who offers herself professionally as a resource for all of us with all of our awkward questions and discomfort and growing pains around this work. I hope this conversation is useful. This is Neelamjeet. Neelamjeet. Hi. Hello. Thank you for joining. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having um, me. Okay, so we're going to talk about social justice work, which is what you do. Um, yeah, and Samara, speaking of social justice, is it okay if I begin by acknowledging the land? Yes, please. I'd like to begin and open our time together by acknowledging the land that I'm sitting on, uh, which is the land of the Tongva tribe, the traditional custodians and their elders, past and present. I have to begin by acknowledging and thanking my ancestors who paved the way for me to be able to take this journey. And I also have to thank my elders and all the people who have taught me along the way. And most especially, I need to thank my partner, my husband, Mark, and my sister, my best friend, my twinnie, Amrita. Without the two of them in particular, I don't think this work would be possible. So I really want to name that because, you know, this work takes a lot of support. And my pronouns are she, her, hers. And thank you. Thank you. My pronouns are she, her, hers as well. So social justice training. Um, yeah, I mean, you know my path a little bit. I was an educator. I was a math teacher before. And um, how I found myself doing this work is I went and got trained by the National Seed Project back in 2012. And so since then, I've been leading these seminars um, around helping people understand how systemic oppression operates. And the heart of Seed's model is storytelling. So it's basically, we, we're really asking each other, like, are you willing to be changed by my experience? Um, and one person that comes to mind is my friend Lauren Whitney. And she made this video called, When Did My Black Baby Become a Threat to You? And it was in response to just the cumulative impact of all the Black lives lost but particularly, I think, when George Floyd was murdered. And it's um, a really powerful video. But again, it, it invites us in to consider how am I going to be changed by her story? What is my responsibility? She's giving me her story. I'm holding it. What am I going to do with it? Yeah, I'm so thrilled she made that. And um, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's also on our uh, social feed. And so now... So I've taken those workshops and kind of taken them out of an educational setting and brought them to my current place of employment, the Jane Club, and also places in which I volunteer or my activist networks. And what are the challenges when you're not working with educators anymore, but just, you know, whoever shows up at your workshops in these social or activism spaces? There's this great quote I love. Um, it's by uh, an educator. Her name is Judy Logan. And she says, close the door and change the world. 
So you have the opportunity in your classroom to really, it's to change lives. And I think a lot of educators, I'll speak for myself, that is is such a um, an honor, but a, a, a huge responsibility. And so I think as an educator, we take it really seriously. So when you come to the work, you bring a level of vulnerability and honesty and a willingness to really kind of step into it um, because you you understand what's at risk. So I think the... I wouldn't say the biggest challenge, but a challenge when you transfer it outside of an educational setting is that it's really hard for folks to see how they're upholding systems. That's That was hard for teachers too, but um, or parents or even students. But it's particularly so when I'm saying I'm doing it in a setting like an organizing setting where those people are coming to the table because they consider themselves to be quote unquote woke or consider themselves to be allies. And so they consider themselves to be good and what does it mean to help people who see themselves in this through this lens, through a, a lens of kind of the liberal ideal of what it means to be in just relations with others, and then recognizing that they still have work to do. So I would say that's a little bit more of a challenge. Yeah. I'm curious to hear for you, what was your experience with it and what was challenging for you? Yeah. I mean, I think you you super defined me when you said that, you know, I was telling Neelam G before we uh, started recording that I, uh, like September-ish, six months ago, eight months ago, um, there had been uh, a workshop that you were doing at the Jane Club um, that I was not available for, for like completely legit work reasons, but also, you know, one has to wonder when, what one's priorities are. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting how I put that in the uh, third person. Um, <laughs> but it made me wonder what my priorities were because you totally called me in. You know, you said something like, noticed you weren't there at that workshop. <laughs> and I felt, you know, uh, an, an instant rise of defensiveness. I didn't, I don't think, present it to you. But inside, I was like, she doesn't understand what my schedule was like, you know. But between that and another conversation I had with uh, a good friend of mine of color who um, was questioning an an organization I was in that was too white, uh, that happened within the same week of each other, I finally picked up white fragility because I thought I just, I I actually think I'm more woke than I am, quote unquote woke, and I need tools and they're out there, you know? (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's important also um, what I hear when I hear that is that, you know, we don't we don't come to this work like arrived. And I, I, though I lead these conversations, I facilitate these conversations, I'm really creating space for folks to do their work. And I'm still doing my work that I, as a South Asian, brown, desi woman of color, am also complicit in anti-Black racism. And it's particularly important for me to center that in my justice work and hold myself accountable and also to name the ways in which the model minority myth has been created to uphold anti-Black racism. And alongside that, I also have the journey of taking a look at my own internalized racism, anti-Asian racism, and how that's kept me from being in authentic and just relations with my own people. So the work never ends. And, you know, I'm still learning and I have a long way to go, you know? And it, I, I think I think that's, there's this thing that my mom used to tell me when, when I would talk about justice. 
because I would sometimes have this like righteousness about my justice and my work with justice. And she would say, you know, whether you have been just to the world and those around you is not for you to determine. It will be determined in your absence. So after I'm gone, those who I've left behind will look around and say, was she committed to justice? And that's really kind of centered and grounded my work to make sure it's a lifelong practice. And of course, you know, being a parent and thinking about the world I'm leaving behind for my children. And then, of course, as an educator, I I used to call those kids my kids too, you know, the world that's for them. And Mm. so, um, yeah, I think about what I hear from you too, is that you're on this journey now and there's so much more that awaits you as long as you stay committed to it. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I am. (laughs) Um, and, and I've really been trying to, you know, intentionally make this space one that's for anti-racism since the start. Because also, you know, once you see, you can't unsee, and um, it affects everything. I mean, if we didn't have racism, we could have cured cancer by now. You know, we could have cured poverty. We could have, we have no idea the world that we could be living in if we didn't have racism, if we didn't have sexism, if we didn't have, you know, all these systems of oppression. What would this world be like? It makes me think of Toni Morrison's quote about how racism is just distracting. Yes, I love that quote. Yes. It just distracts us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. It takes up so much of our brain and our bodies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk specifically about this concept of racism for anybody listening in who's relatively new to what their place is in in dismantling it, basically. Um, Something that was a real takeaway for me from White Fragility, from Robin D'Angelo's book, is that um, there's an oversimplified version of what racism is that many of us grew up with, that racists are bad people. So you can't both be a good person and also do things that are racist. That would break our brains, right? And so Mm -hmm. we just sort of reject all of that. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that she introduces, and she does this, you know, social social justice training work as well, right? And so one of the things that she introduces to a largely white audience so that they can start to think about this is that racism is these small acts that we do that uphold systems that, you know, serve us in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't even, as we were just discussing, but serve us in certain ways. And I wonder if we can actually jump in and talk a little bit about that that resource that um, I mentioned ahead of time about yes. how white supremacy culture shows up in our work. Because this, I think, is so, it's so tangible. When we talk about racism, the one danger is, as as I just said, you know, racists are bad people and I'm not a bad person, so I'm I'm not the problem. That's a that's a real black and white uh, yes. way of thinking about it that is, that just stops us from growing. Mm-hmm. And another part of it is, okay, if we admit we are each of us racist because we are all breathing that air and we have since we were babies. How am I racist? And then we think, does that mean being mean to people who don't look like me? Because I don't have a memory of doing that, you know? And so this document that I found when I took a feminist business school course, which happened last year, so I guess that was maybe the beginning of me really, it was an online course that was so much more um critical thinking in academia than I expected. And, you know, as a real feminist course and not just a quote-unquote white feminist course, a lot of it was about white supremacy and the ways that we are perpetuating it in our work without realizing it Mm -hmm. for entrepreneurs, for maybe women business owners. Um, So I want to pull this up. I'm going to provide it as a resource in the show notes, but um, the characteristics of white supremacy culture 
Uh, it's by Tima Okun and Kenneth Jones. And um, it's part of something called Dismantling Racism, a workbook for social change groups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It says below is a list of characteristics of white supremacy culture which show up in our organizations. So the first one is perfectionism. Yeah. Can I share one under perfectionism that I think is really powerful? Yes, please. Making a mistake is confused with being a mistake, doing wrong with being wrong. And I think that shows up a lot in institutions. And I think that that really undergrids white supremacy culture because to do justice work is to acknowledge that we're doing harm, we're doing wrong, we're making mistakes. But if you have an ideal of white supremacy that's upholding your institution in the form of perfectionism, you're not even going to be able to get to it because what happens is folks come to the table and you say, hey, listen, the institution is making some mistakes. It's getting them some things wrong. And people are like, well, well no, I'm, I'm perfect. This institution is perfect. How dare you? Are you calling me a racist? And mm-hmm. then it becomes this debate about whether someone's good or bad. So perfectionism is directly linked to the earlier point you brought up of this good-bad binary. And the question isn't whether we're good or bad. The question is, to what degree are we racist? And then the question is, how do we work to be anti-racist? Right. How do we actually schedule in time and money and energy into improvements? Yes, It says, one of the other bullet points says, there's little time, energy, or money to put into reflection or identifying lessons learned that can improve practice. In other words, little or no learning from mistakes. Yes. So then the only only choice you have is to redefine a mistake as not a mistake. Exactly, exactly. Which just takes so much energy away from, I mean, that's the distraction, takes so much energy away from actually doing the work, which, you know, would help people grow and change and probably improve their bottom line. Yes. Well, come on, y'all. It's capitalism. And (laughs) that connects right to the sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all of these uphold each other. The sense of urgency, I think, is, um, you know, we don't have time for this. Or we do have time for it, and we have to do it right away, and it has to be perfect, and we, you know... Yeah, we don't have time to be, you know, inclusive or to use a decision-making process that's democratic. So, you know, head down and no drama, anyone. And and that's the other part of doing this work is that folks kind of expect this like, kumbaya, now we're all friends and we can get past this whole color thing after you do, say, like a seminar on anti-bias or a seminar on racial identity um, or racism or sexism or whatever it is. And the truth is, you're going to be more uncomfortable afterwards than you ever were before. And how do you build that endurance for discomfort, for really examining the ways in which you are complicit? And I want to say, you know, that's a discomfort that is just second nature to folks who experience that oppression. Well, and that connects to another one I want to call out, which is the right to comfort. Yes. I mean, I was reading this thinking about the Kavanaugh hearings and was like, oh, right, this helps me understand stuff the right to comfort, the belief that those with power have a right to emotional and and psychological comfort. Mm -hmm. Scapegoating those who cause discomfort, equating individual acts of unfairness against white people with systemic racism, which daily targets people of color. The Mm -hmm. idea that, you know... It goes on and on. Not everybody gets to to be angry in your office. Right. And how that shows up in the individual sense is that... You know, someone will say, this thing happened to me in the workplace. It was racist, sexist, heterosexist, whatever the case may be. 
And we won't have systemic thinking cap on. We'll have personal or interpersonal thinking hat on. So we will dismiss their experience and say, this is not systemic oppression operating. This is just that one person. They're just a little too sensitive or, you know, we do all sorts of mental gymnastics. Why can't they take a joke? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, I mean, that you're right. Kavanaugh is a perfect embodiment of that. And we, the whole country got to watch it. Yeah. Um, Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk more about this, specifically the intersections um, that you're talking about here, because, um, you know, for a lot of white ladies, we think first about the ways that we're struggling to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And I, I absolutely center that story in this podcast. That is a part of the point of this podcast. And I also want to say that I'm including immigrants here. I'm including anybody who's queer who feels like how they come across is affecting how how seriously they're taken in spaces where they would like more power than they have. And what we can learn from some of our own experiences there to equip us better to deal with racism. But we need to take a break first because of capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Okay, we're back. So what I'm thinking about specifically with this question of intersectionality um, is if we can think about the ways that we have felt oppressed and start to gently think of ourselves as oppressors. And what is that relationship? What is it to sort of like sit with that for a moment? And then and then the next step is, I don't know what the next step is. I don't want to say the next step, but another step is um, 
Neelam Jeet, I know you're interested in how white people who are sort of on this journey can call in gently enough that they're heard other white people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to that first piece about realizing that you uphold systems of oppression, um, I think the the emotion that I would name is shame that comes up for a lot of people. And shame is an emotion that is, you know, shame equals I am bad. Guilt is I did something wrong. There's some agency in guilt. I can try to fix it. I can try to right a wrong. But shame is an emotion that really kind of stops you in your tracks. And what I like to remind people is that this system was built without your consent. You were placed into it without your consent. You have been programmed and conditioned to operate within it without your consent as children, as teens, and then as young adults. And that's by design. That is how the system is built to be. That's not to absolve people who hold privilege of their responsibility, but it's just to give a little space for some compassion and grace to say that, you know, you individually did not create the system overnight. It took hundreds of years to build it. And it's made invisible by design. So be patient with yourself, but also hold yourself accountable and use that feeling of, my God, am I causing harm to people? Are there things I'm just by walking through the world? Is my very existence a problem? People start to ask themselves these really difficult questions. And what I like to say is, you know, a lot of times in this work, it's not necessarily like arriving at the answer. It's that keeping to ask the question continuously going down that journey that reveals another question, another question, another question. I think about, are you familiar with segments of self-knowledge? So, you know, there's what you know, there's what you know that you don't know, there's what you don't know you know, but my favorite is what you don't know that you don't know. So if you are committed to being on this path of justice, of really understanding systems of oppression, the ways in which you are either oppressed under them or the ways in which you benefit under them, the intersection of all of those, right? So how I experience racism intersects with my religion as a Sikh in this country where we've experienced a lot of, um, our, my community's experienced a lot of Islamophobia, xenophobia. So that's different from, say, someone who is uh, South Asian and not Sikh. So it, it's all intertwined and we're all, we all have our work to do. That being said, back to DK, DK, what you don't know, you don't know. That is the work that you're committed to. So you stay on this path and you continuously start to see, my God, I didn't know that I didn't know that. And that again is by design. So that's what I would say to folks, back to your question, is to just, to stay with it, to not let shame be the driving emotion. It's not sustainable, to let love, I know this sounds so cliche, but to really have love lead the way. And, you know, we live in a culture where we have one word for love. So what, what I'm talking about love is I'm talking about work. I'm talking about getting it wrong and still showing up, having so much love for each other that we still show up. There's that, um, oh, what is it? It's the, the African philosophy of Ubuntu. I am because we are. There's this quote by Desmond Tutu, 
my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. So that's what I'm talking about. That's the love I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, I mean, and like this is connected to my philosophy as a as a Sikh, as a soldier saint, as um, in the tenet of Charitikala, of eternal optimism in the face of darkness. I have to believe that I can move people towards justice, that they can move me towards justice, that we can both hold each other in this and move together. Now, that being said, everyone's work is different, you know? For some folks, it's doing the work like I'm doing it. And for some folks, it's just taking care of themselves. That is an act of resistance. But what I'm saying is, long and short, is don't let shame be the emotion that drives you to do this work. Let love be it. What has been your journey with finding the way that this optimism and buoyancy and positivity that's associated with this concept, how you find that in the you know, despair of the worst, the worst aspects of, you know, racial and economic inequality in this country. Absolutely. I mean, I can't point to any one thing. It's a very good question and it's a long answer, but I'll just give one, one short story. My mom died two years ago. It devastated me. It broke me. I uh, was really close to her. I, I can't even really describe like just, I hadn't experienced that kind of grief before. It was a physical grief, like my body ached. And I, of course, I've experienced grief and the loss of life of other folks and, you know, trauma that I've experienced, sexual assault. It, it was it was really different. And I name that to say that I really want to center how hard it was because on the other side of it is this. It's the most unwelcome teacher I had, but that it it, it did actually like deepen my joy. And so... This is a complicated thing to say because I'm, I'm not saying that you know it's because I've had I've experienced such oppression that I can have such joy, or that that's the journey for people. But I I do know that that pain that I experienced has connected me to other people. So for instance, just this past week we were protesting for Black Lives Matter, and this man came up and started to say all sorts of stuff. All lives matter you're a racist. Um, why don't you like white people? And in my mind, I just kept thinking, um, you were born at one point, you had a parent, you maybe lost that parent. I know you know what grief feels like. And that's not to say I didn't hold them accountable. Um, I did engage them. And I said, you know, um, did all the things and we won't take time for that now. But no, actually, well, I mean, if you wouldn't mind sharing, I think that this is also probably useful. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of ways that folks are trying to um, distract from the conversation. Um, I'm not saying other lives don't matter. I'm trying to really center the fact that we live in a system that has disproportionately treated Black lives like they don't matter. And so that's what that statement is about. It's about centering that truth. I will also say Indigenous lives matter. Mm -hmm. So... You know, and and that's that's like just saying that statement is so upsetting for people. That should illuminate to us the work that we have to do. That saying Black Lives Matter upsets people so much that this man will pull over, get out of his car, and come yell at a woman with like my children were with me. And so, um, I I I can't. Was I? Angry? Yes. Did I uh, want 
punch him in the fucking face? Yes. Um, and I had to keep reminding myself, he is lost. His heart is lost. He is coming from anger. And I wonder how much of his anger is in response to his shame. Now, it's not my responsibility to take care of him, but I will not let him take away my love and hope for humanity to stay on this path. So that night, you know, I prayed and I said, I hope he sees it. I hope he finds justice. And listen, I can't do it. So that's why I come back to this thing of like white folks need to be doing the work because I bet there's a white person in his life who can gently call him in and say, hey, can we talk about that all lives matter thing you keep saying? Let's really break it down. And, and this might be someone that loves them. It might be someone who totally disagrees with them, but because they love each other, they can stay in conversation with each other that I cannot. I did all that I could in that moment and that was it. And I had to walk away. Can we talk? This is connected. I think of you as somebody who really lives and models deep listening. And that's sort of what you were just talking about. And for me, I'm using that term to try to capture this sense of hearing what somebody's real concern is underneath the words, however hurtful they may be choosing. Is that something you learned? Is that something you teach? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, active listening. I think it's a teaching practice. And Samara, I would say, I'm going to kick it back to you. How did you become such a good listener? I mean, you host a podcast. You listen to people. You listen to their voices. It's a lot. I mean, it's definitely been lifelong. Um, Partly, I will say, this sounds cliche, but having an acting background, the entire point of an acting training program is to get humans to read a text that is other humans talking and figure out what's happening underneath the words. What is the motivation? What do people want when they're not saying what they want? And, you know, I didn't end up becoming an actor, but I ended up becoming a person who thinks about every human interaction in those terms. And that's also how I teach my kid. You know, if he says, I want water, I say, okay, how do you, that's great. That's the first thing. That's the want. Now, how do you ask for what you want? Right? Sort of like reverse engineering it. And actually I'll share because I was thinking about bringing this up anyway, I think it might be useful for people, but one of the most like crystallizing moments for me in terms of how deep listening works is this exercise I picked up from a workshop I did once and I've repurposed it. But if there's person A and person B and person A has a minute or two, let's say one minute to vent about whatever they want to vent about, it has to be something that they can get really passionate about. It can be as massive about, you know, the the, the worst atrocities of the world, or it can be the sound of your husband chewing. <laughs> you must swear at least twice. And person B's job is to just listen. So person A has one minute on the clock. They do whatever they can. Often they poop out and realize, oh, I don't actually, I don't actually hate this stuff as much as I thought I did, which is always fascinating, especially if it's, the, you know, in the second category. But also, even if they are, they're huge, they're passionate, they're whatever, and person B just listens. What's person B's job? After that minute is over, person B's job is to turn to the group at large and say, this is my friend, whatever person A's name is, and what I know about person A is, oh, wow. and then say absolutely nothing of the actual vent, not even a wink at it, not even a hint, just what you learned about their values and their concerns as a person. Just by listening to that vent, whatever it is. You figure it out. You hear what you hear. Wow. And you and person B did not know in advance that that's what they were going to be listening for. 
but it forces them in front of a group mm. to honor person A. This is my friend and I want to honor them. Mm. Two things happen. One person B has often the first experience in their entire life of speaking in public without thinking about themselves because it is such an active act to try to honor this person and say things that were not what they, what they just heard. And second, it really strengthens or, or begins the process of developing that muscle of how do I listen for the concern underneath what people are saying? Words are weird and, you know, inarticulate and not always, they mean many things in English or not enough things, you know? But the underneath, the motivation, the, the human, you know, the beating heart underneath mm. the words is what we're really, what we should be listening for. That's... Yes. And it's something that comes to mind. If you're forced to really listen to what's behind the words, does that help you get past the form from which the words are emanating? And I don't mean to say that in like a colorblind way or to not see gender or, but to hold it and not to see it as a single story of that person's experience. I mean, this is brilliant because what I'm hearing is... <laughs> Look at us. That all the different ways that we, all the different ways that we articulate ourselves based on our life experiences, and I, I mean this from the absolutely literal, what accent we have based on where we grew up, to all of the socialized stuff that's, that we've picked up on purpose or not our whole lives. I'm, you know, a this age female, so I say like in my statements more often than a, you know, a different aged female or a, you know, 65-year-old man, you know, whatever, uh, all the different ways that we've been socialized to communicate how how we do, how each of us individually does, um, is take it or leave it. It's part of us, fine. But underneath it is the stuff that's way more universal. What our wants are and our needs are, we all have the same. But because of that top-level stuff that comes out different, we don't hear it the same. Yes, yes, absolutely. And there's so much fascinating data about that. Um, when you want to think about bias and our medical system and how we hear pain, the same pain, how we hear it differently if it's coming from a Black person, a white person, a woman, a man, a rich person, a poor person. I mean, uh, a brown person, it goes on and on and on. So yeah, I think it's really powerful. I'd love to talk about the ways that you open and close meetings. You know, you modeled for us something at the top, but even naming the land we're on and naming our pronouns mm -hmm. is a start. Mm -hmm. And then there's something else too that I've heard you do in a number of meetings I've been in with you, where you really name intentionally what's happening in the space or what we hope will happen in the space. And I wonder if you could talk about how, you know, each of us can do some version of that when we're attempting to have a difficult conversation with somebody to sort of set some sort of a ground rule. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. And especially, for example, white friends who are in denial of their privilege or something. Yes. So I will say it might feel, or I won't say this, I'll say that for me, when I have tried to kind of off the cuff do this in a friendship and say, hey, can we have a difficult conversation and here are some ground rules, it doesn't really fly so well. So I will tell you what I have. It feels like it completely rends the social fabric of yeah. like what these contracts are when we when we start a conversation that seems like it's supposed to be casual. That's right. So I think that if I'm in a situation where it's one-on-one, -on -one, I will call them and I'll say, I want to have a difficult conversation with you and I hope you'll stay with me. And I'm bringing this conversation to you because I trust that our relationship can sustain it. And 
I am going to do my best to speak from my experience and not make statements with you in them. Like you do this, you are this. And I, you know, can you do the same? And let's just see where we, where we go. Now that's one of the ground rules in the work. And again, these are guiding principles from the National Seed Project. Um, I really hats off to them for putting me on this journey and all the tools they've given me. You know, speak from your own perspective, share the airspace, balance listening and speaking, acknowledge intent and focus on impact. And also acknowledge that our impact is viewed differently based on our identities. So there are several others, but the idea is that I really want to name for folks the work that we're about to take on and to give us some structure to hold us in that space so that when someone starts to point a finger and say, you, I can gently interrupt them and say, hey, listen, let's refer back to our guiding principle. Can you make that statement again and make it an I statement? Speak from your own perspective. And so there are tools that help you in facilitation, but it also really, it sets the tone for the conversation. Those are also such useful. I mean, I feel like we all need to listen back to the tools that you just listed off and like take notes and post them in our offices because this isn't just for difficult conversations about race. This is for any any difficult conversation, you know, asking for a raise, asking, you know, going to HR, mm-hmm. anything. And mm-hmm. if you're not necessarily in the power position, you can't necessarily name those and set the space that way, but at least you can practice, how would I go into this conversation with I statements? Yes because it's going to work out better for everybody, you know? Right. And I'll add one to that for your listeners. Expect discomfort. Again, I think we touched on that earlier, but to expect that this is going to be like kumbaya, it's going to be great. We had that difficult conversation and then that's it. Um, This isn't a checking the box. This is going to be a daily practice. So expect discomfort and be curious about it. I just want everybody to hear what you said to a group of us on Sunday night, which is cancel culture won't kill any of us, but our silence will take lives. Yes. You know, our reputation, how we're seen, whatever, getting it wrong. Yeah. The perfectionism that lives in many, many of us. Yes, absolutely. Right. And just acknowledging that if we're holding that in opposition to the pain and the violence that our silence can bring. Absolutely. That is where some of the discomfort lies. Absolutely. That, you know, we kind of got to choose the second one. And then how does that feel? And how, what, is it, what does it actually feel like to get things wrong? Yeah. And especially in when, you're, when you're visible and audible, not just alone in your own house. No. Yeah. And to build the endurance for that, because that's what this is going to take. And to not just build endurance, but like the joy part of it that you're talking about is like, how do we, how do we think about growth in those feelings that are like, in those moments that are like, oh, as like also curiosity and also like yes. joy that we are becoming a better version of ourselves. Yes. There's yes. this wonderful, what you were talking about at the very beginning made me think about this wonderful concept that David Brooks, God bless, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I rarely quote white men, but he talked about uh, resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Oh, That yes. so much of us in our lives are going for resume virtues, right? I want to I wanna be or seem successful and accomplished. Yes. And really, what are people going to talk about us when we're gone? Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back to find out who you brought in for us. Okay, great. This is it. 
your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Okay, so who did you bring in for us to listen to? I brought in uh, Angela Davis. Because who doesn't love Angela Davis? I love it. Sort of, it feels to me at this point like every single person that my guests bring in, I'm like, I can't believe that this person hasn't been brought in before. But the timing is so great. Thank you so much for bringing her in. Now of all times, Angela Davis, revolutionary, Black Panther, scholar. This is um, a famous clip of her speaking to a reporter in 1972 from a woman's prison where she was serving time for a crime that she didn't commit. Here it is. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, uh, I just uh, I just find it incredible. It, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. I'm familiar with that quote. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah. Listen, yeah, listen. I went straight to the. I went straight. To, I was. I was. I. I listened to some of her later. You know, she's an academic. She's done a, right. a huge amount of lectures that are available on the internet. But I thought, especially this is, you know, this this uh, clueless white guy asking yes. about the choice of the Black Panthers using violence as one of the revolutionary tactics, and she just spends like three minutes saying, um, "I'm sorry." Our choice? That's right. That's right. Well, I think about something that, and again, this is not, these are not my words. Um, these are things that a lot of social justice activists are saying right now. Um, I think Tamika Mallory said this. 
I was going to say, she's yes. the exact same quote. It was the exact yes. same thing. People are talking to us about looting. Well, this land was looted from the Native Americans. Black bodies have been looted. And we're just doing what you taught us. The violence is what we learned from you. That's right. That's right. So don't talk to us about violence. Don't talk to us about looting. Take a look at yourselves. Absolutely. And the fact that Angela Davis, I mean, she, in this video, she's smoking while in a women's prison in 1972, wearing like the coolest like 70s turtleneck while in prison, (laughs) saying these words directly to the face of an absolutely clueless white man with all of the theoretical power in that room. Well, and what's also very interesting is that that man is, um, I forget now, but he's like Scandinavian or I don't, I'm not, but he's not an American. Right before he goes in to um, speak with her, he does speak in, an, in another language. I actually don't remember German or something. And um, yeah, and he basically focuses on like that he got the he got the scoop. He's the first person to get to go in and talk to her. That's right. So that's clearly what it was. It was like, I just made a, you know, awesome career move. And, <laughs> yeah, that's right. and then was so ready with his gotcha question about, about how violence isn't the answer. And then she gotcha him back. That's right. That's right. It was about him. And he didn't even realize that it has nothing to do with him. And everything <laughs> to do with him. Yes. Love that quote. And I mean, also, what a great, it's so, it's so 70s, but the um, the news footage just focuses on her in tighter and wider uh, view, but doesn't actually cut back to him, which just like, you know, is lovely. It really centers that like she's the, you know, point. Well, I also love, and you'll know more about this than I would, I love how intentional she is with every word. It's so powerful to hear her speak. That's right. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm, you know, listening and pin drops. She's economical and yet says, you know, it's, she just has a way with words. Yeah. And I, and I wonder also if it's, um, you know, at that point she'd already had so much academic training and so much um, revolutionary training. You know, she'd read enough to know what her opinion was, Mm. is what I'm trying to say. And, you know, a secret for all of us when we're trying to speak publicly is obviously to do the work, but what that means is not just to do the work of reading, but to do the work of reading and then sitting with what do I agree with, what don't I agree with. Yeah, and and I think what was so powerful for me to see as a young woman of color was her confidence. Like I needed to see that uh, because I saw confidence as something that only certain people got to have. Hmm. Now, let me tell you something. My mama was confident, walked into a room, was like, everyone's looking at me. Everyone's listening to me. So I'm so thankful I had her to guide me. And I did not always get to see that with a lot of folks of color. I mean, it's training. It's training, right? Mm -hmm. The deferential the, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I call it performing gratitude yes. that a lot of us were told it is a requirement to enter a space. And if we don't perform gratitude, yes. we are called, depending on our identities, a bitch. Yes. Uppity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So then we are like, okay, I guess I have to perform this. And then it, it's so ingrained in us that we, we don't know how to be confident because our entire life we've said, but I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, we walk into our, into our room and I'll say for myself, I, I would walk into a room and I did me- immediately apologize for my existence. I'm so sorry. Am I too loud? Am I taking up too much space? You know, mm-hmm. am I too brown? Mm-hmm. Am I whatever? Fill in the blank. Am I not enough? Well, and this is something that, you know, comes up on this podcast a lot because obviously I'm on a huge kick for people to 
who are listening to, you know, think about the ways in their life that they're apologizing for taking up space and taking up time and start to, you know, roll that back and also acknowledge that some of that is in place because of systemic oppression, their safety. Oh, yeah. Their fear of their yes. safety. Yes, absolutely. Yes, the systemic oppression that led them there, but also yes. why they might not take the advice of this random woman on this podcast absolutely. is because they're all ready to, they're all ready to say, you know, today's the day I'm not going to apologize for myself. And then they walk into a space that's scary as fuck. Yes. And they realize the only way they're going to quote unquote phrase I use all the time, get what they want with their voice yes. is to play that game. Yes. It's why we've done it. Samara, can I share one short, powerful story? Of course. This was years ago. Um, I was facilitating during the National Seed Project's summer institutes. So I was facilitating for one of their summer institutes. And I was in a small group discussion. It was multiracial with men and women as well. And um, cisgendered, heterosexual. So we have this uh, we have this protocol where when someone causes harm, you say, ouch, and then that person who caused harm says, oops. And then that is when there's a facilitator check-in. So there was a comment that was made by a white woman that caused harm to a black woman. And a black woman said, ouch. The white woman immediately said, oops, and burst into tears. Well, the entire circle shifted towards her. And the first person to give her a Kleenex and comfort her was the Black woman. She got up from, they were sitting across from each other in a circle, got up and gave her a Kleenex. And I was about to like jump out of my chair and the woman I was sitting next to you, Gail Cruz Robinson, who is an amazing facilitator and um, is uh, one of the lead staff at the National Seed Project, just kind of gently touched my knee because she could tell that I was about to fly out of my chair. And she gave it a moment. We all, you know, took a breath and said, I want to point out that the harm was caused to the Black woman, and yet we're all tending to this white woman. And I actually want to turn to this Black woman and ask her, you know, why did you also go to comfort her? You're the one in pain. We need to tend to you. And she said something that I still gives me chills to say. She said, when she's uncomfortable, I'm unsafe. And that's something that will never leave me. And a reminder to me that if folks of color cannot show up to do this work in the way that white folks are doing it, that's the different justice that we need and that we have to create in this world. So when folks of color do the work, they're literally risking their safety. When white folks do the work, they're risking their comfort. I also wanna ask though real fast, does this work, does offering yourself up as a facilitator while also being a woman of color create a burden for you? And if so, how do you relieve it? It is a weight. It's a hard question because it, it is hard work. I relieve it. I find my affinity spaces and I retreat to my, the women of color in my life who support me. Um, I retreat into my, I shouldn't say retreat, but I find shelter in my faith, in my religion, Sikhi, and I get into nature. I cuddle with my babies. I read, 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 and I breathe, take lots of deep breaths. But um, yeah, it's not a choice. I'm compelled. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. I'm grateful for this space, for this time. 
for your voice and my voice to co-mingle. Thanks. Thank you. I'm crying. I cried. You made me cry. That's good. That's good pod right there. I know. (laughs) Thank you to Neelam Jeet for joining us. You can find out more about her and the National Seed Project in the show notes or on our website, permissiontospeakpod.com. And there's also a really amazing bit of bonus content that's going to be thrown onto ye old Instagram feed having to do with uh, awkward things that uh, your kid might say around people who look different than them and some feedback on what to do about it. Please go to Instagram, permission to speak pod, send me DMs or write in the comments. I would love to see it uh, publicly as well. Tell me what the difficult conversations are that you're having this week. Tell me uh, about how it feels to use your voice in new and weird ways. And, uh, you know, let's keep this conversation going. I'll do a mailbag episode coming up. So uh, truly, if you have any questions, whether it's about social justice work or about leadership in any other capacity in your life. And, you know, by leadership, I just mean saying what matters. You know, let me know. We'll talk about it. It will resonate with other people, believe me. Thanks as well to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio, my family and friends, and all of you, truly. We're recording this podcast at various locations around Los Angeles, on land that is the historic gathering place for the Tongva Indigenous Tribe. And you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring Native land. Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Catherine Burt Canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.